Hey, welcome to the Florida Masses Podcast. My name is John Barrett, your host. I'm back with a banger. I'm elated to have this guest on the podcast today. But before I tell you who he is and what he does, we have admin tasks we have to take care of because we do what we have to do. Please follow us on all platforms at Florida Masses Podcast and on YouTube at GB the Masses Podcast. Let's continue to add to the subscriber count. The views are coming. So I appreciate everyone. If you wish to support the podcast monetarily, please sign up for Anchor Supporters. Um, it really helps the podcast grow. All right. Um, this podcast has had a plethora of guests, um, guests who are exceptional in their field or what they choose to do. This guest that I have on today is exceptional in many fields of his life. Um, and I'm interested in learning about his story. So, hey, I welcome Andrew Sloan to the podcast. How are you doing, sir? Hey, I'm doing well. I'm humbled by your words. <laughs> hey, it's the truth. It's the truth. I heard about it through the grapevine. And that after, you know, hearing a little exum of your story and text message, I'm like, oh, okay, yeah, we got to get this guy on the podcast for sure. Sure. And I appreciate it. Hopefully I don't disappoint. No, no, no. I just think um, your story is so uh, powerful in and of itself. Um, so any any platform you would get on, it would be powerful. Thank you. Yeah, for sure. For sure. So, sir, sir, I'm going to try not to call you, sir. I'm going to call you uh, Andrew while we're on the podcast. Yeah. By all you know, mm-hmm. for sure. So, so, sir, tell everyone a little bit about yourself, where you were born and raised at, essentially. Yeah, sure. Absolutely. So I was born in a country that no longer exists. I was born in the Soviet Union, um, wow. you know, just in time to catch its collapse. I was actually born in 85. It collapsed in 91. So I have wow. very, like, vivid memories of an imploded empire. And if you can imagine if an empire imploding on itself, it's a pretty terrible thing to watch from the outside. Yeah. But it's a really interesting thing to watch from the inside. I mean, it was chaos, absolute chaos, um, you know, uh, corruption, um, you know, drunk, intoxicated men ruling the night. We didn't have lights for days at a time. The water, I remember picking up water at one point of time, and it had like little bugs and little worms, you know, floating in it. Wow. And they were still alive. We had to boil it. And that's basically what you're drinking. Uh, we had water maybe once every couple of days. Uh, then you fill up basically every empty jar that you have in the house and that's pretty much drinking water for the next you know so many days um wow. you know there were times that the shoes would freeze to the ground because we didn't have electricity no heat uh and then on many, many occasions we had to go and sometimes steal food you know and that's wow and uh, that's what we did uh you know and please don't judge me for it i mean i don't um of course not i'm not i'm not promoting stealing food but unfortunately those were the very hard times in the 90s and so uh, it became ukraine eventually in the 90s and to this day, they call it the terrible 90s. Um, yeah. you know, it was just organized crime, ruled everything. Uh, we had uh, what we called racketeers uh, that would show up in the middle of the night and demand money. And it was a protection tax. Uh, but my parents were, quote unquote, well off. Uh, my mom was an attorney. My dad was a, uh, he worked for the Ministry of Internal Affairs. He was an anti-corruption officer, which was ironic. Great, yeah, you know, sure. not, not a great place to work <laughs> in the yeah. 90s. But um uh, but but they uh, they they gave uh, uh, money to to a different group of racketeers, and then these racketeers had to figure out who's in charge, and it's just yeah. like crazy stuff. Observing that on the streets, but that was that was the life pretty much that I grew up with. Wow, that's that's incredible. So you were around six when the wall fell, um, mm-hmm. and and from that moment on, it was just probably like pure chaos. And you mentioned some of the stuff. So what were your what was your mindset like back then? Because obviously, how do you you know tell your kid that like hey like electricity isn't working, um, and we don't know when the next time it will be, or hey we don't have enough water right now, and I don't know when the next time you'll have water. How how was the mindset when you were like six years old, if you can remember? Yeah, so as a six-year-old, um, you know what I do? I did. I didn't know enough about international politics or, or the Soviet Union or Ukraine or anything else to, to actually realize what was happening. But um, I do remember basically the vivid memories in my mind. It went from, uh, you know, we had food, like there was stability, like there was no war, to like it just changed. I couldn't quite understand why, but but things changed. And I do remember actually uh, one vivid memory from, I was about maybe five or six, and uh, my, my father was stationed in Kaliningrad in the, in the Soviet Navy years ago, decades ago. And we were coming back through Estonia, uh, back to Ukraine, and the war started. Uh, and, you know, there's like 14, wow. I think, uh, Russian officers were killed, and like a, about 100 Estonians were killed. And, um, as we came back, you know, we were like, oh, we're so grateful that we finally made it back to Ukraine before the war uh, happened and, and I was like, okay, well, that's, that's mind boggling. But that's what I remember. It went from like, you know, semi normal to 
just absolute chaos. Um, but wow. why that was happening, I didn't realize that until I became much older and I actually started reading about it, you know, now from the United States. Yeah. Um, you know, and take an interest in those things. No, for sure. So how long were you um, in Ukraine before you came to America? Yeah, so um, I was almost 12, but then we moved to the United States. Uh, so six years in the Soviet Union, six years in the Ukraine, and then the rest wow. of my life in the United States. Um, you know, so it was really interesting because, you know, I was indoctrinated, I guess, in the Soviet ideologies the first six years, Ukrainian yeah. ideologies the next six years, and then we moved to the United States. And here, other New York City was actually the first uh, city we moved to. You know, so it was really interesting just having that comparison of like three different cultures, essentially, and yeah. three different political systems. You know, man, that's um, awesome. Three different outlooks on life. Um, but, uh, and then, you know, from New York City, we moved to, um, uh, my, my dad has some friends in Ohio. So we moved to Ohio, which is a completely different part of the United States, you know, from yeah. New York. And then the military, man, the military took me everywhere. Took you everywhere too. That's incredible. So from not, from like 91 to like 96, 97, you were in Ukraine. Uh, so what was it like? like after the fall, like, I know it was hard to come, like water was hard to come by, electricity wasn't there, but did it get better in any way, shape or form? I think it did, um, not for us. Uh, I think up to 1997, it was actually getting worse. I think things started turning around probably, this is just my estimate on it, about 2004, 2005. Um, me and my brother, we had an opportunity to actually visit Ukraine in 2005. So, so we left 97, we went back in 2005. Things were different, like there was stability by 2005. Like you had electricity, you had water. Yeah. Uh, for the most part, things on the street were much calmer. Um, but but many things were the same. Uh, you had a lot of people who were just angry at, at, at the system, at life. Um, yeah. You know, um, so from that vantage point, it was very hard. Nobody could find a job. Uh, many people were going to Poland, UK, France, United States. Um, basically, you know, making all the money that they can make and then going back and um, kind of, you know, there was their substance for the next, you know, 10 years. Um, yeah. That's the way it was. And then things, I think, gradually were getting better until, you know, obviously 2014 or so. And, yeah. And I think it went back down. So, um, and so when you, when you, you and your family left to come to America, what was the premise for them leaving just because it wasn't a good place to raise a family? Yeah, I think my, my father mainly, I think he realized that me and my brother, we didn't have a future in Ukraine. Um, yeah. my, my, my father was an anti-corruption officer, and he was one of these anti-corruption officers who would not take a bribe, and um, uh -huh. you know, which is not a good place to be. So the story with my father, essentially what ended up happening, he was investigating corruption charges against his own bosses, these colonels and generals who were oh, taking wow. bribes. And uh, at one point of time, the way my dad says the story, they said, look, you, you either quit or you're going to die. And uh, him and his partner, they were supposed to go out and meet this crime syndicate. Um, but they noticed certain things weren't, weren't like aligning. And my father has already been in this line of work for about 10, 10 12 years. And uh, he like uh, the, the vehicles also be provided cover, disappeared. They weren't given ammo. They were sort of like left out there by themselves to meet this armed oh, wow. crime group. And my father realized something's not right. And so him and his partner, they essentially said, look, we're not going to meet these guys. These guys are going to kill us. So they didn't, they ended up not going to the meeting place, uh, but they actually knew where one of the guys lived and they basically broke his door in the middle of the night, dragged him out to the river. And they said, look, we're gonna kill you unless you tell us who hired you. And uh, he was like, well, look, your boss hired me. And uh, so wow. next day, my dad was like, yeah, I'm done with this. Uh, so he left, uh, you know, and it took him about four years before he finally got a political asylum actually in the United States and brought the rest of the family. So that's, oh, so that, yeah. So, so he so he left um, for four years prior to you all coming um, and like just a visa or he just came in as a refugee or like, how does it work? Uh, so he came on the visa, uh, but he knew he was not going back. There's nothing to go back to. Um, yeah. So so he immediately applied for a political asylum, uh, which he was granted, but it did take a couple of years. So he left wow. in 93 and um, uh, uh, me and me and my brother, and my, my mom became in 97. And over oh, those wow. four years, you know, he he was making money here and sending it back. And when I'm saying making money, I mean, it was like $50. Yeah. <laughs> you know, yeah. he was making about, I think as a matter of fact, he was saying he started off at $5 a day. Um, you know, he met some other Russian immigrants or Ukrainian immigrants and they, they all lived in this one house and they were making $5 a day and saving every penny. And 
you know, and then he was sending money to us in Ukraine and, um, you know, that's um, kind of how we made it happen. So, so with the, the state being like that, how, how was it for it? Just like your, your mom, a woman, and then two like young children, like how, how was it? Like, were you guys like protected in any way, shape or form? Uh, we were not, no. As a matter of fact, my, my last year in Ukraine, we had to go into hiding. Uh, we actually went, um, my god, their godmother, um, uh, so it's kind of a long story, but she ended up going to church and, uh, she's like, look, you, know, you guys have nowhere to go. And she came in one day and <laughs> she just said, you guys gotta leave, man. You know? Wow. So we left. Wow. You know, we just, we hid basically for, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I'm sorry to hear that. And um, so so your your dad basically got political asylum. Eventually, brought you all guys to you guys to America. Um, how was that? How was uh was it a little shock? You know, come coming to America. Yeah, talk about a uh, culture shock. Um, so I apologize about that. You know, I try not to talk about these things too much because you know it's not not yeah. pleasant memories. But yeah, we were we were no, hiding. My last year in Ukraine, we nobody knew where we were. We were hiding in my godmother's uh, uh, apartment. Uh, that's how we, yeah. we made it happen. Um, then we moved to the United States and we lived in, uh, um, uh, Brooklyn, New York, uh, the name of the town. I forgot the name of the town now. Um, uh, anyway, I forgot the name of the town now in New York, but you could imagine we went from a, a, a semi small town, 30,000 people in Ukraine to yeah. 12 million or something, uh, in New York city. Yeah. Um, so it was, a uh, just a culture shock beyond belief. Um, you, you know, things you could never do in Ukraine, you, you could do here. Um, you know, like you could cross the street, <laughs> you know, you could cross the street and yeah, go forward sure. if you wanted to, you know, um, you could read whatever book you want to read. I mean, you didn't have those, you know, stability, you had political stability here. I think that was the biggest thing. You could go to the store and buy things, you know, you couldn't dream of, uh, uh buying anywhere else. Uh, you know, and, uh, yeah, no, it was, uh, it was really interesting. Uh, but I think my dad also realized that, that maybe New York city is not the best place to raise, uh, little kids, especially when yeah. you're like barely making yeah. any money. And, uh, so he ended up, yeah. um, taking us to, to Cleveland, Ohio. Um, well, although I'd argue this is also not the best place, you know, to live Ohio. Yeah. General, yeah, yeah. Uh, not, not a highly, uh, <laughs> oh my gosh. Uh, <laughs> yeah. No, for you know, sure. So, yeah. So, so you, so you were in Ohio from like 12 to what, 18 or, or so, or. Uh, 12 to 17, my 17th birthday, I told my parents, I was like, look, we got to figure this out. Cause, um, we didn't have any. You know, we, were, we had like a, a green card, basically. You know, we weren't even permanent residents at the time. I don't even think it was a green card. It was like an alien number or something they gave us. Um, and I was like, look, we got to figure this out. I can't go to college on this. Um, I'm not sticking around home because I graduated high school when I was 16. Uh, oh, like, wow. I, I got to do something. So on my 17th birthday, I kind of talked my parents into it. I said, look, let me go in the Army. And my brother already joined about a year earlier. And, and, you know, and then he went to Texas and I was like, oh man, this is awesome. Like uh -huh. go wherever I want, you know, 17, you know, you're not quite thinking the way that you would be, you know, that yeah. my, <laughs> my thinking, <laughs> thinking style is a little bit different than it is now. And, um, you know, so I, I, I enlisted basically at 17, got my citizenship within a year. Um, went to Korea, uh, which was amazing when you're 17 and you're in Korea and you're Ukrainian and like, it's like awesome, you know, and uh, I got to explore yeah, that. I got sure. to enjoy that. Um, you know, explored quite a few places in Korea and, uh, you know, and, and it just had a blast. And then from there I came back to Fort Bragg and I was like, man, I'm never going back to Ohio. Like it's, this is like way better. Yeah. You know, actually I was going to be enlisted yeah, for, for 20 sure. years. Well, yeah. But obviously it did not work out. But <laughs> yeah. Yeah, for sure. So you graduated at 16. I did. So yeah. like high school was like easy for you. It, it was like too easy for you or, or how was it, that experience? It, yeah, it was. Um, I never had any issues in high school. I, my, only my first year in the United States, I had a little bit of trouble uh, because of the English language. I rocked math, yeah. rocked chemistry, physics, all of that. Uh, English, I, I like. I was like a C minus uh, for about the first year. But after I understood like what English language is about, like kind of got the grasp of it, you know, started rocking it, and then actually graduated high school honors English and, and you know took all the AP classes. Um, it was just too easy. I mean, I don't know. It never challenged me. Um, you know, I, I got to skip a grade when I was in Ukraine because I excelled a little bit. So I, I skipped the grade in Ukraine, was in the same class with my brother. He graduated 17. I graduated 16. And I was like, you know, 
Give, and I'm actually oh, glad wow. I didn't go to college when I was in high school because I think I would have ruined it. Uh, you know, yeah. Because college is, you know, a little bit different. You have to yeah. be a little bit more mature. Different. Yeah, for sure. Yeah. So, uh, so like you've always just like been like high intellect type of person. Do you know your IQ? I don't know. Never, yeah, okay. never took the class. Yeah. yeah for, for everyone listening, I also know about uh, Andrew's uh, abilities. Um, so it's like very impressive to like see that that intellect was around his, his whole life, essentially. So graduated when you were 16, uh, enlisted into the army, went to Korea. And obviously you had to get some type of education eventually. So did you, as soon as you joined, you just started taking college courses? Um, because, you know, a lot of people join and they, they don't end up doing that immediately. Yeah. Um, and, and, you know, it's, it's, it's interesting. So now I teach at the American Military University and I taught at the University of Virginia for some years. And uh, one thing that I will say, so AMU and, and, and your traditional universities are two different things. And when I was at, uh, when I was enlisted, I was about 17, I started taking classes on uh, University of Maryland, University College, whatever it was called at the time, UMUC. But anyway, um, I failed one of them because I was in the field for like 30 days uh -huh. at a time. And, you know, I just couldn't take all the exams. I couldn't do all the readings. And so what ended up happening, I ended up taking a pause basically when I was in, on active duty. Um, and then... After I left active duty, I went to, to college, I went to school, and I really, really, really enjoyed it. I think I enjoyed it a little bit too much, ended up sticking around for a PhD postdoc, eventually a professorship, and doing my second PhD now. And um, and I encourage everybody, just never stop. As a matter of fact, today I was uh, interviewing for a position uh, in my university, and they asked me, like, why are you doing these certifications? You got, like, a plethora. I'm like, why stop? You know, if you're yeah, on a roll, sure. keep going. Yeah, for sure. It keeps you sharp. So hold on, you, you skipped over a lot. So you were in, you joined the army and how long were you active duty? Uh, I did four years active duty. Okay. I then re-enlisted for, uh, to go on the trail as a drill sergeant. Um, okay. and then I ended up basically going back to college at that point to a community college. And, oh, um, so, yeah. so you were in four years, um, to what rank did you get to? I got to a staff sergeant. Okay. You get E6 in four years? Uh, I think I was like a sergeant, but when I enlisted, they gave me a staff sergeant within like a year or something. So okay. I think it was like five cool. years. Yeah. Okay. Because I was wondering how you went to drill sergeant school as a like a E4, E5. Okay. So you're E5, got E6, um, and then you went to drill sergeant school. Um, that's awesome. So you went to drill sergeant school, uh, came out, and you went to community college full-time? I did. Yeah. So I actually, as a matter of fact, I started going to community college while I was still on the trail um, because oh. I knew that I was out of school for so long. Um, I just wasn't sure how it was going to work out. But then I found that community college is easy. I mean, it's like just not challenging at all. Um, so then I realized that it's like, okay, let me finish up this community college thing and let me apply to a real university right as my contracts were. Yeah, for sure. And it, it just worked out really well. I applied for ROTC program, which they picked me up. Um, I applied to several universities, um, and University of Virginia was the one that I really wanted to go to, and that's the one I got into. And then stopped spending about 11 years there altogether. Oh, wow. So then, so you um, went to UVA, you, you finished your under, you did your undergraduate degree there? I did my undergrad, master's, PhD, postdoc, and even took a faculty position there. Oh, wow. So you were, so you, were you a full-time student for 11 years, or like, what were you doing while you were in school? Yeah, I was a full-time student. Um, as an undergrad, I did two minors. I did one in business. I wasn't sure if I was going to stick with engineering or not. Um, so I did aerospace engineering major. I did a minor in mechanical engineering, minor in business as an undergrad. So I was just like super busy. Uh, yeah. The ROTC scholarship paid for everything. I mean, I, you know, oh, okay, single, okay. you're like in your yeah. 20s, you know, like you don't have to, that, that many expenses. Um, so I really, really focused on school, and I thought I was going to get an MBA and uh, uh, and go out and, and like do a startup. But then I realized I kind of liked engineering as well. Yeah. So uh, I, I ended up getting a master's for engineering, and then ended up doing a PhD in engineering as well. Um, you know, just full time research. Once you get into graduate school, especially as a doctorate student, uh, you know the professors keep you busy. Yeah, um, for sure. They'll have you working for 60, 70, 80 hours a week. Um, I think that's why a lot of graduate students are single, actually. Yeah, it's so taxing. Yeah, but they they try to crank you. Uh, they, they try to get you to crank out papers, publications, and so at least my program they required three of us. Um, you know, so I was in the lab just collecting data nonstop. 
so I graduated time. This took me six years. But then you, uh, then you enjoy. That's incredible, though. Yeah, for sure. That's incredible. So my my thing is like, so you from the fall of the Soviet Union to you know what three higher degrees essentially, um, and then you're working on one now. You said so you got two PhDs or I'm working what? on my second PhD right now at Johns Hopkins. That's incredible. And what's that in? Um, uh, material science and engineering. So it's, it's closely related. Wow, to that's incredible. Yeah, yeah I that's enjoy it. I encourage that's, all That's of an your, amazing feat. Yeah. All of your listeners to go to school. Our peers? <laughs> yeah, for sure, for sure. I mean, because I've been um, thinking about PhD programs, too, as of recently. But I don't know what I would do. Probably some type of organizational leadership or something like that. Um, I'm pretty mm-hmm. into that and that kind of stuff. So, yeah, so, you know, PhD, PhD was a commitment. I apologize. Uh, but uh, I think no, it was a commitment, no. but it definitely opened up a lot of doors. You know, yeah. it, it's been a, a phenomenal experience. It opened my eyes to the world of research. You know how they tell you, you don't have the right to uh, uh, make up, create new things. Well, they only yeah. tell you that until you get a PhD. Now I make up my own <laughs> words. And nobody ever challenges yeah. me on it, you know. Yeah, um, for sure. <laughs> I, I present new ideas and papers, even though they're, they're purely theoretical, you know, they're frivolous exercises and intellectual content. And, but nobody challenges me on it. They're like, okay, well, it's, it's biased criteria and, you know, mathematical <laughs> analysis. So it's got to have real applications, even though I, maybe it does, maybe it doesn't, you know. PhD uh, has been a phenomenal yeah, experience. Sure. Man. experience as well. So, you know, something I noticed about you, um, you find things like that uh, extremely, like, funny. Um, and I was watch. I was listening to like an Elon Musk interview, and he had the same type of humor too. He's like, "Yeah, the Tesla dance." He's like, "It dances," <laughs> and then he was like, "What do you mean it dances? Like it plays music? No, it dances. Play music around it, it'll dance." And he's just like, you know, so like that. That's like seems like to be a common trait of Musk. Like how you like go through ups and downs. So and, uh... how 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 do you feel like your PhDs? PhD added to your military career because simultaneously, I know that you went to a few. Uh, pretty high level, like military schools. Yeah. Um, so as far as the military schools and the PG itself, it was extremely difficult to balance. I actually went to air assault, uh, went to, I believe Pathfinder as well while I was still in my PhD. So basically I disappeared off the grid for about 10 days or 11 or whatever days. Um, that was challenging. I was also on, wow. you know, AT and I was doing it on Fort Pickett at the time. So that was a challenging aspect of it. Uh, but overall, the PhD actually helped me out tremendously in my career, uh, my military career, as civilian as well. Uh, yeah, on the military sure. side, you know, one of the things that every officer gets evaluated on is your higher education. And, you know, I think it's something like 50 or 60 percent of the uh, captains and below actually do not even have a master's. So if you can actually have a master's, you're going to be, you know, mm-hmm. top like 30, 40 percent. And, it, and it's only, I believe, only about 3% of officers actually have a PhD. And as you look at, you know, one of the things really? that I do, I sort of read through the biographies of all these, like, four stars, uh, out of curiosity, but all of them have a PhD. And as a matter of fact, all of them have a PhD from a very prestigious universities. So PhDs opened up a lot of doors for me. Uh, as a matter of fact, I was studying my, uh, I was in my first doctorate program, and that's how I got picked up for cyber. And I was one of the first cohorts to be picked up for the cyber branch. And part of the interview and part of the reason it was actually recommended to me when I was a first lieutenant uh, by the gentleman, I forgot his name now, uh, from the JFHQ, Lieutenant Colonel. And he said, look, you're you're doing a STEM PhD. Why don't you apply for the cyber thing? And I was like, cyber? Never heard of it. Um, but that actually, that was one thing that opened up. You know, there was actually one of the things that, it, that helped me into this world of cyber. Uh, the other thing that is doing, and, and I can kind of see it now, is as I interview for these other positions within the Army National Guard and Army Reserves, one of the things that they look for, uh, these very unique niche positions, is whether I have a PhD. Um, you know, because it's only 3% of the populace, you know, that actually has a PhD within the military. Can you say it again, sir? As you look at the population You said they, general, they're looking for very uh, niche positions. The States, I think it's only like one. Oh, I... Yeah, they are looking for PhDs because it's only three percent of the population that actually has it in the military. So, so if you're wow. if you have a PhD, you're head and shoulders above everybody else. You're automatically going to max out the education metrics, you know, which gives you a certain percentage towards your next promotion. 
So yeah, it's sure. a commitment. I mean, there were times that I didn't want to do it anymore. I failed my first qualifier. Uh, you know, you get two two opportunities. You fail two of them, then you, you never get a PhD, basically. Uh, I failed my first one. So the pressure was on. You know, I spent like yeah, six months sure. just deriving equations, you know, making sure that I passed the second one. Um, you know, but now looking back at it, that commitment was worth it. It's just like any investment. You know how you invest into stocks when you're 20 years old? Well, you expect yeah. that payoff later when you're 50 or 60. It's almost like the same thing, except the investment is not monetary or fiscal. You know, it's, it's investment is, you know, intellectual, if you will. Um, so, yeah, yeah, so PhD has been a great experience. Uh, it was a commitment. Uh, we had our little kids were born as I was finishing up my PhD. And basically, uh, you know, I was with the kids in the morning, had to go uh, into my lab at night, run experiments over overnight. Come back in the morning, make sure that like, you know, I didn't like pop a fuse or something. Um, but then hopefully the experiments worked, get the data, go back be with the kids. Like it was just such a hectic, crazy schedule. Yeah, um, for sure. But it, you know, it paid off. It's, um, again, it was, a, it was an investment. It was a commitment. Um, it's sort of like my parents taking that, um, that risk of moving to, to a country who's, culture you don't know, whose language you don't understand. But they're like, you know what, uh, let's take that risk because Ukraine may not work out very well 20 years down the road. Yeah, And, and they were right, you know, even though it was extremely challenging. Imagine going from, my, my mom was an attorney. She went to cleaning houses in the United States. Imagine from being one of the chief prosecutors in your town to cleaning houses, Yeah, you know. But that was that was a risk and investment that my parents decided to do, and I think it paid off in the long run. And, for and sure, it's the that's same a blessing thing. for sure. So, 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 sir, so, like, what do you think your drive came from? Because I forgot, I forgot you had a family too, so you were doing this all around a family. So, where does that drive come from? Is it you know being a first generation like American and, and coming here and, and like understanding that American dream, or what, what? What gives you your drive? Yeah, I think I think there's two components to that. I think there's two answers. So, so one of them, uh, I, I think it is the fact that I see so many opportunities in the United States. U.S. is absolutely just just full of opportunities. You know, uh, in the Ukraine, like unless you know somebody or your dad is somehow connected somewhere, like chances are you're not going to get into the university or to get into. But in the United States, nobody cared like what my dad did or what my mom did or, you know, nobody cared about any of that stuff. You applied based on your, you know, like you take exams or your performance or like, you know, uh, just kind of like how they believe you're going to perform. Uh, so, so that was one thing, like the opportunities. You know, I semi-jokingly yeah. talk about these things. Uh, when, it, when I was growing up in Ukraine, we didn't have all the books you could read. I mean, like yeah. we had these books we had to pass and share. Today you go on Amazon, you can read anything you want to read. And the irony behind this whole thing is that in the United States, nobody reads. <laughs> that yeah. In the Ukraine, where you yeah. don't have the books, people are trying to read. Uh, so I think that's part of it. It's like I see opportunities everywhere. Uh, even even as you look at the military, uh, you know, the military gives you opportunities to go ranger school or, or air soul school, yeah. or pathfinder or whatever. You know, the, the resources are there and it, you, you're going to get a, a lot of no's. But you, as long as you keep persevering at it, I think I think you're going to get it. And, and I think the second component of it, you know, uh, as I begin to to contemplate the greater meaning of life, uh, you know, I came to realize just how insignificant human beings are. You know, and we have to see that behind all of our big titles and PhDs and, and all the paperwork and certifications, really, we're just human beings. You know, we have to respect yeah. one another. Ideally, we would. Uh, and then the second thing, you know, is, um, uh, you know, I kind of saw the greater call into things. You know, uh, ultimately, what I do is not really about me. Uh, it's about making, you know, this country safe and secure and peaceful and uh, ensuring that, uh, you know, we have a, a very long and, and prosperous and auspicious, um, you know, the life that, that my kids can enjoy and their kids and the kids after their kids. Um, you know, I think For that's sure. what it comes to. And so that's why I do what I do, you know. Yeah. No, that's beautiful. And, um, you know, I always appreciate you because you're one of the people that actually, like, they actually did what they said they were going to do. Um, I remember like three years ago, I think I was a second lieutenant or, and you had, Hey, I like, I got some aerosol slots. I was like, sir, yeah, I'm trying to go, you know, any schools I can go to. And like every year when the money came back, you know, hit me up. Hey, next year is coming back to Virginia. Just want to keep you in a loop. And it's like, you will always remember me. And I was like, all right, yeah, this guy's different. And um, I appreciate him on a different level. 
So I wanted to tell you that in person. Well, over the over the podcast. And thank you so much, and I really appreciate it. Um, yeah, and so we got you. Yeah, we'll get you air salt. Uh, we got a good connection. I think you should go Rangers to do in Pathfinder and Airborne. Oh, I definitely want to do it all. No, I definitely want to do it all for sure. Um, you know, and I, I appreciate you because I think you make the unit better. Um, there's guys like you and like Major Kukar who are always just trying to get people to like understand their capabilities and understand that, hey, like if you want to do something, you really can do it um, and, 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 and God and, you know, putting your mind to it. So like, mm-hmm. let's talk about that. Why, why do you, why do you think, do you think everyone has like this internal, like this capability to do more without a governance? Uh, I, I think I think we do. I, I think everything kind of depends on, on whether you choose to develop it or not. And this, this is my take on it, and this is my observation. Yeah. Um, you, you know, there are so many different experiments that were done over the years, but, but ultimately comes down to how a human being chooses to react to a situation. But, but it's still the choice is up to those human beings. And there's so many different examples. And I'll bring a few. So, so I can't remember who wrote the Freakonomics book, but... Uh, the gentleman from University of Chicago, but but he talks about this in the same family, you will have kids, uh, same upbringings, same set of parents, same genetics, same, you know, uh, investments, same everything. One child chooses to, you know, move on and become a, uh, you know, a successful career person. The other one chooses not to. Uh, the lady who wrote the uh, It's Never Enough, um, she, she's a former drug addict. And she talks about the. She's a former drug addict who became a, a, a neuroscientist, uh, and then she left her addiction, became a neuroscientist. She writes about the, the the issues of addiction and how the human mind works. And one of the interesting things she talks about is essentially the brain can be whatever you train the brain to be. The brain is not you know a purely biomechanical system. You know there's this thing mm-hmm. like that, a free will, if you will, uh, that, that that can drive the brain to be one way or another. I understand that addictions are very challenging to overcome, but nevertheless, I mean, that's one of the arguments that she makes. I mean, once you actually overcome them, you can actually train your brain to be a certain way. There's a lot of experiments and Matt Ridley talks about it. He's a biochemist from Oxford University. He talks about also extensively, you know, as far as like training your memory, he talks about the hippocondromus. Hippocondromus is like the central uh, component of the of the memory within, within our brains. And uh, the interesting thing about it, they, they call them the pyramidal neurons, uh, but, but the way they actually uh, work is essentially they take the um, they take the signal in, uh, and the more signal you feed to them, the more they can actually take. So, so essentially, it's it's a, it's a memory system that grows as you give it more mm. growth. It, it's almost like you know exercising your muscles uh, in a way. It's yeah. kind of, it's kind of like that. The more you train it, the more it becomes uh, um, you know stimulated and engaged, and uh, you know. Me and my brother, we, we, we went to school. My brother always did better than me in school. Um, mm-hmm. But, you know, uh, as I started uh-huh. reading and kind of like expanding my mind and and reading more and then my mind got more engaged in things, I realized that even some of the people that were like, you know, that used to outperform me intellectually, uh, eventually like I caught up to them, right? And, yeah. and again, but it wasn't easy. It was just work that you put in. Uh, and sometimes, you know, when I was a child, when I was growing up, uh, uh, I didn't really have the motivation to do it. You know, I mean, I was yeah. enlisted in the army. I mean, you know, that's kind of the way it went. But probably in my mid-20s or so, things started to change for me. And, um, you know, my mind expanded. Um, you know, I started looking for greater meanings of life anyway. And and I think that kind of drove me. Uh, and now it's like it's it's engaging. Like, I, I love to read. I You know, I always learn about something that's not even in my field of study. So I, yeah. this is my take on it, you know, but I truly believe, um, you know, if you can train your mind uh, to either be engaged or you can completely shut it off. Um, I think Matt really also talks about it. Uh, the, the, uh, I think they're called the dendritic tubes and they're essentially the tubes that collect, the, they connect the, the neurons within our brain. And, um, you know, the more of them you develop and you essentially develop them by stimulating your mind, uh, the, the, the faster, the sharper your brain is. But if you just turn off your brain, then it, inevitably they die. And, you know, there's a lot of uh, experimentation that has been done with that as well. If I can bring one more example, and she's my advisor from the University of Virginia, and she's a phenomenal woman. Uh, you know, she also was born in the Soviet Union in the 30s. Uh, they actually worked, her and her husband, they worked in some classified Soviet lab somewhere in the Soviet Union. Anyway, the Soviet Union collapsed. They were both about 60 years old. 
she was already a PhD level professor at some institute out in, in Russia. Um, he was also, you know, a very well distinguished scholar. And at the age of 60, they ended up moving to the United States. They didn't know the language. They didn't know the culture, nothing. Uh, they ended up learning the English and, uh, they, they wow. ended up teaching both of them at the University of Virginia until they were about like 90. I think she retired at like 98 or 99 years of age. And you couldn't just walk into her office and be like, well, you know, um, yeah. take silence. You couldn't just like broken science or BS or you had to really, really be on top of your game. Uh, she had professors who were working for her and she would just be like, you don't understand what you're talking about. You need to rederive the equations and just shut them down. And, you know, and this woman was in her nineties. Wow. Uh, wow. and I, I'm embarrassed to say, but there was one time me and her, we had a mathematical debate about something and, uh, she was right. So this woman in her nineties absolutely schooled me and I was in my, you know, mid to late twenties. Uh, and I thought I was on top of my game. Uh, so, yeah. so then the question is, how does she keep her mind sharp? until she's into her nineties. And, and, you know, as you, as you talk to her, you realize that she, she's constantly engaged intellectually. You know, she's always reading wow. something. She's always exploring. She's always doing research. And, um, you know, and, um, so I, I truly think, you know, our, our brain is as useful as we use it. Yeah. As long as we use it, it's going to be useful. Uh, if we stop using it, then it becomes useless. That's incredible. Um, I, I tell people a lot too, and I, I heard this quote, then I reheard it like later on in life. But essentially, it's like, hey, once the mind is stretched, it never goes back the same. Um, and I mm -hmm. think they were alluding to uh, neuroplasticity mm -hmm. um, and that that whole concept. And um, I talk about that all the time. And so that's incredible that you know you, you just backed it up with more science, you know, for for me too. And also, you let me know I don't have any excuse if this ninety year old. Uh, post-Soviet lady come, come over here and, you know, uh, be a top professor at UVA. So I have, I have no excuse. So, sir, how, 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 how do you raise your kids? You know, how do you raise your kids? You being, being so like driven and, you know, coming here and like, you know, working your way up. Yeah. You know, I, um, I got two girls. Um, okay. You know, my, my brother has three boys. Okay. So I think, and this is my take on it, raising girls or raising boys is a little bit different. I, sure. I know my brother is a little bit more strict with the boys. I think I would be more strict, but because I have two girls, I'm a little bit more lenient on things. Yeah. So I try to approach them uh, in very much the same way that I try to approach my wife. Um, I try to be patient, kind, yeah. forgiving, loving, peaceful, you know, um, and sometimes, you know, I have to wait five, 10 minutes before the hair is done or whatever, Yeah, yeah <laughs> you know, but sure. I, nevertheless, I, th th that's kind of how I raise them. I explain to them, uh, uh, you know, why we do what we do. And also I tell them on numerous occasions, I told them about, uh, you know, that they need to appreciate everything they have, uh, yeah. in this country and everything that they're given, uh, and all the blessings that they have, uh, because there are kids right now in Ukraine. In the, you know, in the very same towns where me and my wife lived, who probably don't have electricity, and it's winter is coming. Uh, winter in Ukraine comes very close, uh, very uh, uh, early uh, October. Typically, mid October it starts to snow. Mm. Uh, so right around now, it's probably hitting freezing temperatures, and they don't have electricity. And I tell my kids, yeah. and you can take four showers a day. Just think about that. We yeah. go to uh, to to a local store and and we can get like five different kinds of grapes. They probably aren't going to have a grape until maybe the summer. Yeah. You know, so I I try to tell them to appreciate the things that they have, and I think at some point of time we we actually do want to take our kids to to a, a country that is not as fortunate as the United States, not as blessed. Yeah. Uh, you know, a country like Ukraine or a country you know, there's plenty of countries out there. You know, maybe somewhere in. Uh, um, uh, South America or, or, uh, you know, into China or maybe Africa or some other places, you know, where, where people yeah. aren't as fortunate as we are. No, for sure. And, that, and that's beautiful, honestly. And, um, yeah, I mean, I feel like, you know, if I had a girl too, I would be a little, I would be a softy, you know, um, for <laughs> sure. You know, so, so, sir, you, you said your wife's from Ukraine too. Did you meet her in Ukraine when you were like a kid or did you meet her here in like a, a community of, you know, no, uh, kind of odd story. Um, she actually lived about an hour away from me in Ukraine. 
but we did not meet until uh, both of us moved to the United States because we lived about an hour away from each other. Uh, I, I ended up moving to Charlottesville, Virginia, uh, you know, for UVA and mm -hmm. her and her family, uh, they were living in Harrisonburg, Virginia. Um, you know, so about a, about a 45 minute drive okay. or so. And, um, um, I was, I was working these really odd jobs. So, so let me explain a little bit about the Soviet system. Soviet system was enforced atheism. Uh, there was no God whatsoever. As a matter of fact, if you want to go to school, you have to deny the existence of God, which is crazy to me. If there's no God, why do you have to deny him? But, but if there is a God, then why, why would you deny him? Mm. But, um, so it was an insane system, but nevertheless, I mean, that's what they taught. And so that's the system that my parents bought into. Her parents were like polar opposite. Uh, you know, they're like, well, fine, we're not gonna go to school, but there is a God, you know? So we're from these two very opposite uh, spectrums of the society of the, you know, Soviet society and then eventually Ukrainian society. Um, but I, I was working these odd jobs uh, as I was uh, uh, in Charlottesville, University of Virginia. One of the jobs that I was working is uh, as an interpreter at the uh, hospital, uh, University of Virginia hospital okay. system. And, uh, you know, and I used to interpret for a lot of Ukrainian and Russian speaking, you know, emigres that lived in Harrisonburg. And one gentleman, I kept interpreting for on numerous occasions, uh, and he was actually from the church where my wife was. And he was like, man, you need to come to the church. And it, it's really ironic because in Russian language, it's actually congregation. Well, the communists okay. uh, also called their meetings congregations. So when he told me congregation, uh, I was like, oh my goodness, like, I don't want to go through this. Yeah. Um, so we started talking. He's like, yeah, yeah. and you need to come to congregation. I was like, I don't know. And um, well, long story short, I kept interpreting for the guy and eventually I came and that's, that's how I met my wife and the rest is history. Uh, you know, but it also did change my life and my outlook on, on many different things. Yeah, because um, so you were atheist uh, prior to and then you, you end up, you know, finding God and finding your faith. Um, can you talk about that a little bit? So what 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 made you make the shift to like actually knowing? Yeah, I think, you know, uh, I think what, what started me on this path probably is, um, you know, Soviet Union told me there's no God, but eventually they collapsed and uh, I was told that they're wrong. And I was like, okay, well, then <laughs> if they're wrong, then what else are they wrong hey, about? Hey, so you're going, you're going, and, you're going and, out and a little the, bit. You know, you have to be pretty insane. Oh, I apologize. Uh, is this better? Is it? Oh, yep, am, I, better. am I online? Ah, okay, perfect. Yeah, so, yep, uh, you, you know, uh, so, okay, perfect. Uh, yeah, Soviet Union told me there's no God, but eventually they collapsed, and uh, and and I was told the Soviet Union is wrong, so I was like, okay, well, they got to be wrong about this too then. So, but, you know, I think you have to be uh, uh, pretty wild. It's a pretty wild claim to say that there's uh, 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 no intelligent being if you yourself are making an intelligent claim. And, and I, you know, and I, I yeah. dabbled quite a bit with philosophy. As a matter of fact, I think I would have been a philosopher if philosophy paid a little bit better. But um, yeah. some of the philosophers that I read, <laughs> and one of them, I can't remember exactly who said this, but I think it's Sartre. He said, you know, my problem with life is not that it's incongruent, but it's not fully congruent. And the more questions I get, the more I have to answer them. And the very last question I cannot answer myself is, why don't I commit suicide? And I thought about that. I was like, this is a world-leading philosopher that we all read and we study. And this guy can't even grasp life. And, and he's making a really valid point. Life is not meaningless, but we can't, it's not fully meaningful either, but we know that there's a meaning yeah. to it. Uh, otherwise, like, you know, you know, like everything I do has a meaning. Everything I say has a meaning, every word that I, I say. So then it, it set me off on this, you know, I, I almost hit a, a philosophical conundrum. How can you say there's no, how can it meaningless processes create meaning? And, and then, like, well, the counter argument is like, well, there's no meaning, but, but yeah, but everything you just said has a meaning. So clearly, I mean, there is meaning. Yeah. So <laughs> I was in this <laughs> philosophical impasse, and and then another thing, it was like, okay, the Soviet Union came out to fight against the name of of, of Jesus Christ, and and they failed, and they told me that the guy is fictitious. So here's this guy who supposedly never existed. By you, the Soviets, you existed, yeah, you failed in the life of Jesus, you know, the, yeah. the, the name of Jesus lives on. So then I was like, hold on a minute, something's not quite adding up. Then I, I you know, my, my, my background was uh, material science is quite a bit of the stuff that I did. And I worked on these advanced functional materials uh, they are called the perovskites. And perovskites are what we call some of the most advanced materials and they're organic based. 
Um, the interesting thing about them is that, you know, they have really, really promising uh, properties, but they don't even come close to, to, uh, to the performance of like absolutely every enzyme within your body. But not only that, they're about an order of magnitude. They're about 10 times less complex than the smallest known enzyme within the human body. Oxalocropylate tautomer is the name of it. Um, and then and now I had another conundrum. So here we are, an army of intellectuals arguing that an unintellectual, a stupid process created something that we intellectuals can't even fathom. We can't even, can't even forget about reproducing it. We can't even fathom it. Um, you know, and I, I grasped grasp with these things. And the other thing I think that also pushed me towards that I, I saw some friends coming back from Afghanistan, you know, and everybody comes back with their demons, uh, if you will. I mean, whatever you want to call them. But, uh, yeah. you know, um, and I, I saw a few friends who lost that battle. I had one friend, you know, commit suicide. I had another one who drank himself to death, basically. He got so drunk, he, uh, he puked in the middle of the night and, and choked on his own vomit. And, uh, and I was like, well, look, oh, wow. life is meaningful. Uh, this, this biochemistry that I'm studying doesn't make sense because I'm an intellectual being, cannot reproduce a single one of those feats that were done by a, by a, 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 a being that supposedly is not intellectual, intelligent at all. And not only that, I was battling my own demons and I saw my friends succumb to them demons. And, you know, I was like, it was probably only a matter of time before we all, uh, before I lose the battle too, um, and I started searching, and right around that time, mm. you know, uh, the, the gentleman was like, you need to come to a congregation. And I was like, what in the world? Um, but as it turned out, it was like a life-changing experience. Uh, and I also met my wife there. And then I realized just how, yeah, for sure. you know, how um, life does have a meaning. And it, it's a beautiful meaning, uh, you know, but it's so much deeper than sometimes we give it. Sometimes we give it this vacuous, you know, uh, uh, reproduce, like that's the meaning to life. Uh, but, you know, but uh, meaningless life Procreation of a meaningless life does not give it meaning. I mean, that's 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 a ridiculous argument. Um, you know. Anyway, so that's that was my long story. Uh, it was about a about a ten ten year long journey. Um, took me around the world. Yeah. Actually, I actually even went to Thailand, searching for for the answers to life. But but I, I think I found them much closer to Thailand. All I had to do was go to Harrisonburg, yeah. about forty five minutes away. Yeah, <laughs> but for sometimes sure. that's what you do. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. And that's a phenomenal story, sir, honestly. So a lot of people that listen to this podcast, you know, they, they want to grow in their faith. They want to, you know, become better at self-development, finance, whatever the case is. You know, you, you literally came from a, a crumbled country and, you know, you came here and you, you've achieved quite the feats. So what are something you can leave with everyone to, like, help them to, like, you know, get, just get to the next level in whatever aspect they, they want to get to? Yeah, uh, I'm not sure if I'm qualified uh, to give advices, but um, oh my god, <laughs> maybe I'll share from my experience. You know, in, in my lifetime, I had a lot of people tell me that I was gonna I was gonna fail at this and that. I, I had somebody tell me that I was gonna fail separate school. Uh, I had people tell me that uh, going to Ranger School at 35 was like the, the dumbest thing you could do. A lot of people tell me that I was gonna I was gonna fail at things. Uh, I had somebody who told me that I was gonna fail at separate school. I had somebody who told me that going to ranger school at the age of 35 was the dumbest thing ever uh, because my bones were fragile. Yeah. Um, I had people, um, a lot of, even, uh, you know, you get a lot of negativity even from the Ukrainian community, uh, you know, who'd say, well, the, even the military, the military, you know, it's for, for people who can't make it alive. <laughs> I heard all sorts of things. Yeah. Uh, when I failed my first qualifier, that was disheartening. And I had a friend of mine who failed both of his, yeah. and so he ended up getting a master's. And he was like, look, just, just, you know, call it quits. You had a good run. Why waste your time? Um, you know, but my comeback to all of it, mm. I, I don't, don't quit. Yeah. Uh, you know, I probably failed at about 80% yeah. of the things that I did. But if you, if you try a hundred different things, you fail at 80 of them. Well, that's still 20 that you succeeded at. Now think about if you try a thousand times, yeah. you'll fail about 800 times, but you will succeed 200 times, you know? And if you just keep that type of mentality, look, Hey, I'm going to sure. fail at this, you know, as long as you keep trying, I think eventually, you know, um, you will succeed. One thing that I'll share, you know, I did have a plenty of failures in my life. Um, you know, uh, I, I even have a bankruptcy, a chapter seven bankruptcy on my record. Um, I had a failed business, uh, you know, even though everything was going great and then eventually wow. failed. 
You were talking about the group of people who um, went bankrupt. Yeah, so it was a, it was a study at the Stanford University, uh, and and these were multimillionaires, and they went bankrupt. Um, and this is where the study actually picks up and, and and continues to to study how people behave after this massive failure. And a, a certain percentage of them, I think it's like fifty percent or so, of these multimillionaires who went bankrupt, ended up blaming. Everybody, the neighbor, the spouse, the, the kid, I mean, everybody was, you know, and so they never actually recovered. They stayed in this depressed state. And then you had the other group of people who were like, you know what? Lessons learned. And they picked mm -hmm. up and they became even more successful than they were before. You know, obviously it took them some years. So, you know, the point that the psychologists are trying to make, you know, how we react to failure is so unbelievably important. You know, if if we go in despair, then you know that obviously it's it's just it's 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 not beneficial. It's not productive. Everybody fails in their life at some point, yeah. you know. But how you react to it, I think, is a different thing. So, so I'd I'd like to encourage everybody, you know, look at failure not as as the end to it all. Look at it as an opportunity, a lesson, uh, you know, something you take out of it. Um, you know, a lesson of humility, maybe even, I don't know, but uh, just don't look at it as something that, um, you know, that, that is a showstopper. Everybody failed. I think I was sharing, you know, I have a chapter seven um, bankruptcy. I mean, I, I failed my qualifiers. Um, I was, I applied to, I can't remember how many graduate schools and I was declined from three or four of them. You know, I ended up getting to Virginia, University of Virginia, which is my, my top choice anyway, but you know, but I end up getting declined. Um, I uh, even Johns Hopkins, I'm at Johns Hopkins now for my second PhD. Uh, I was declined three times. And the third time I was finally accepted. Um, just don't look at failure as a failure. And, and the last story maybe I'll share, my wife told me no for four years. And then she finally said yes. Oh, really? <laughs> she did. I chased her for four years. For, for like a boyfriend, girlfriend or for like marriage? Uh, for marriage, she didn't want to talk okay. to me at all. She ignored me, um, <laughs> you know, so, but again, I think I want to tie it into the fact that like, just, just don't quit. I mean, it's, yeah. even if you fail 80% of the time, that 20%, as long as you keep trying, the 20% is really, really significant. For sure. And, you know, I appreciate the stories, you know, you, you shared, sir. And I, I think a lot of people like listening to this podcast is going to find inspiration, motivation, whatever shin that they can from this episode. So if they have any questions or they want to reach out to you, where can they find you at? Yeah, absolutely. Please share my, um, my Virginia.edu okay. uh, for anybody who's interested. Uh, I'm more than happy to discuss, you know, and hopefully help. No, absolutely. sir. And I appreciate you for taking the time out to jump on a podcast. No, thank you so much for having me. I really appreciate it.